Welcome to the College Counseling Podcast, the podcast about counseling students on the college admissions process. I'm Sam Pritchard, and today we're doing a different sort of episode. Counselors have told me that they find it valuable when we share what counselors should know about testing and prep. So for today, I'm joined by my partner in prep, Mai Jumamil. Mai is a former teacher, tutor, student advisor, and school partnership manager. And now she's director of pre-college programs along with me. Today, we identify the most important things for counselors to know about the complex world of college admissions testing. Another great way to find the info you need is on our Counselor Hub, where you'll find resources, free events, and everything Kaplan has to offer to counselors. You can find it at captest.com slash counselors. Now, on to my conversation with Mai. Hey, Mai, how are you doing? Glad to have a conversation with you today about, about testing and prep. Hey there, Sam. I'm really happy that we actually get to have some time where we can go back and forth talking about prep and and how um, counselors and advisors and teachers should be should be helping their students with that yeah and this really isn't a new topic to you you've been working with students for a while can you tell tell everyone a little bit about the work you've done with students yeah absolutely um so i started as a as a teacher in southern california Um, And then I spent a few more years advising students, so planning out what what their testing calendar should look like, when when it would be best for them to test, um, helping them out and understand what's going to be on the test. Um, And and then from there, working as a director and, and helping students on a broader scale. How about you? Yeah, um, I started, working with students also in Southern California, but toward, toward Pasadena, the, uh, up, in, up in LA County, um, working with students teaching, uh, tutoring, uh, and then moved to the Philly suburbs and continued doing some, some teaching and tutoring there. Um, and have uh, worked for a while in our relationships with schools directly. And uh, yeah, now trying to put together some helpful resources for for counselors as as you are. Um, We've heard from some of the counselors that we've talked to that this is a topic, the topic of testing and the topic of test prep is something that new counselors have a lot of questions about. One of the questions I've gotten a lot is, do colleges prefer the SAT or the ACT? Or if I'm applying to this college, which one do they like better? How do you answer that? That question is so interesting because we get it all the time, but there really is only one answer to that, and that is they accept both tests. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a simple answer for the most part, but uh, for some reason, it's, it's over, it, it, people overthink it. Yeah. So both tests are accepted to any university, any college for the most part. Um, and with that being said, there are some key differences with, with these two examinations. Um, so it's important to understand that, yes, they are two tests um, and they have different formats and they have separate content. And so the only real question that should, you should be thinking about is, or as a student and as a parent is, which test should my, my student or uh, which test should I take? So that's really the, the best question to ask in this scenario. I mean, you've dealt with and you've, you've talked to students for years about 
the same question, how would you advise a student which test they should take? I agree. It's a question that, that comes up a lot. Um, and I think there are a lot of rules of thumb that are out there, um, many of which I find unhelpful of, well, math students should do this, science students should do that. Um, really, these tests, they, they're similar in some ways, they're different in some ways, and I think we need more than rules of thumb to, to answer the question. The best way to determine which test is a better fit is to get some practice with, with each one. Um, there are ways to take full-length practice tests of each, each test, the SAT and the ACT, and students can get a score on each and see um, which one is a better fit. We do find that some students score better on the SAT, some score better on the ACT, and some it's about the same. And it's best to find that out on the front end of the process. Unfortunately, in the Mid-Atlantic, where I've, where I've worked with a lot of schools, what we, what we see many students doing is they'll take the SAT, maybe they don't get a score they want, so they take the SAT again, still don't get a score they want, maybe take it a third time, and then as a last try, do ACT and say, wow, this is, this is a great score. I wish I had known about this and kind of taken the, taken the ACT three times. And so much better to find that out on the front end um, and, and be able to specialize to an extent while you've got the time to figure out, okay, this is my test. Now I've got time to figure out what is the plan that, that I want to put in place here to, to try to reach my goals. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I feel uh, in, in, in my experience, I, I have an understanding that students, sometimes students before they even know that they can fully prep and study for these examinations is that they treat the official tests as practice tests. Um, and so they don't allocate the time necessary to practice before they take this official and think that they can come in cold, like it's a pop quiz, <laughs> which is which is an interesting thought. I, I mean, coming in blindly to a big test that's going to weigh heavily on college applications and your admission school, um, it's it's an interesting thing to think that students can can go and and walk into a testing center thinking that they paid and they're ready to take the test. Um, so what would you say regarding that thought process? Like why, why do you feel that students will take the test um, as practice, even though it's an official test? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is it's convenient um, if you can just say I'm gonna register and I'm just gonna show up and see how it goes. That's, that's convenient, you can do that. You don't, have to, you don't have to wonder, should I do this, should I do that? I'll just show up and see how it goes. Um, I think there's a couple of, couple of risks with that approach though uh, that I think aren't fully realized by, by parents and even some counselors. One is if that score is not what you want it to be, then oftentimes the next test date that you're planning on is right around the corner. So a student that tests the May SAT, let's say that's their first time testing, they get their scores back in about two and a half, three weeks, and then they say, oh, this isn't what I wanted. Well, when's my next chance to, to test? It's in about a week, the June SAT, and maybe they're already registered for it. You're not gonna be able to make a meaningful impact in that period of time, and so, you're kind of artificially compressing your timeline if there is action needed. 
Um, two, I think there's a lack of confidence in practice tests. So um, if there are ways to get reliable practice before taking the test officially. And so we have, we have resources to do that. There, there are tests that we offer. Um, there's a site, captest.com slash HS events, where students can, can log on and take full length practice tests, take an SAT, take an ACT, and find out how they're scoring uh, on the front end. Um, I think the third one, it's a, it's a rare one, but it's worth mentioning that there are instances in, uh, in the news at the beginning of 2019, where when there are dramatic increases where a student kind of walks in and treats the test as a pop quiz, and then the second time they really get serious and the score increases dramatically, that kind of invites scrutiny. And <clears throat> there's some high profile instances of that happening earlier in the year where be, due to the increase in part, the, the original, the higher score was invalidated because there were some concerns that there had been some cheating. Um, I was glad to read from the college board assurances that it's, scores are never invalidated due to increase alone. There's always some other irregularity, whether it's correlation with another student's paper or, or, or grid or something. Um, but still, you, you invite that scrutiny to an extent. Um, and so much better for students if they get some practice unofficially on the front end, and then they're ready to go on that first official test date. Um, and so then if the test dates are, are right in a row, that's fine. You know, you're just, we're, when we're recording this in the midst of the, the NCAA tournament, uh, NCAA men's basketball tournament. And so those games, if you're ready for the first game, you're ready for the second game as well. And so um, I think there's, there's some value in being ready for that first one. And then you're ready for the, the successive ones and are trying to improve on a good score versus, you know, hoping to, hoping to, to get a score that is, that is not, discouraging or, or something um, as you're as you're testing. I, I agree with all of that and I, I think just to add in as well when we're talking when we're talking heavily on scores that's another piece to the way students should be thinking when they take the test is you should have a goal score in mind. Um, I feel as though students don't know well enough about the scoring scale um, and in the in the studying piece of um, prior to taking the official test and, and they can allocate time to studying, like it leverages this opportunity to understand the test better, understanding the format, understanding the scoring scale, um, and understanding how they could use that all to their advantage while they're taking the test. Um, and I, I feel as though there are a, num a good number of students that fall short of that. And it's unfortunate because they have a real opportunity there. Absolutely. And I think that that concept of a goal score is foreign to a lot of people, uh, but I think it really is the best first step related to testing uh, to, right. to put in place. Um, and some may think, wait, a goal score, well, you're scoring where you, you're scoring wherever you're scoring. But we do see students that are able to aim for a certain goal and, and achieve that. Um, so you know, a goal score, how would someone come up with that? So oftentimes this might be sophomore year or junior year. It's, it's not, you don't have a set college list at that time, but most students in that, in that age, they have started thinking, there are a couple of colleges maybe on their minds where they say, maybe, I'll, maybe this is a score I wanna 
learn more about, or maybe this one will be on my list. Um, definitely, students are unlikely to have their, their final college list or even have decided which ones they're gonna apply early with. But I think looking up what the score ranges are for those colleges that, that a student may be aware of is a good, a good exercise to, to start this question of what could a goal score be? So colleges release what they call the middle 50% scores, where it's the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile for students who actually ended up attending that university. And so we'd recommend aiming for that higher score in that range, that 75th percentile. If you're applying and you're ahead of three quarters of the students that are actually there as students, then that's a strong place to be. Um, and you're, you know, you're likely close to a place where merit-based aid might be available even at that, at that level. Uh, and so getting that goal score, I think it would be step one, figuring out what would make you competitive for the colleges that, that a student is, that a particular student is interested in, in applying for. Um, beyond that, the, the schedule I would think would be the next piece that they would wanna look at. Um, so the, the test dates, we have a, test dates are available everywhere. We have a resource on um, our counselor hub at captest.com counselors, where you can look at all the test dates for SAT and ACT in one place and take a look at, are there conflicts that you have? Is there a, is there a state tournament for some sport? Is opening night for the play uh, at that, uh, at the same time as one of those test dates? And so starting to look at when those test dates would be is helpful. Uh, we, we generally recommend students take whichever test they find from those practice tests that they already took, whichever the SAT or the ACT is a better fit. Generally recommend that students would test twice in the spring of junior year. And if, if they're where they want to be by that point, that's great. They can be done. If not, they've got one more chance to try to raise it a bit more uh, in the fall of senior year or with the newer summer test dates. A couple of things to, to think about related to schedule and, and when to be testing. I think one of the biggest things, and you mentioned it earlier, is their math sequence. Where are, are they in Algebra 2 in junior year? Uh, if so, there is a significant amount of Algebra 2 on both the SAT and the ACT. And starting kind of later in the spring, maybe a May, May test date might work better, where students gotten through most of that content uh, in, the, in the class by that point. For students that have done Algebra 2 sophomore year or, or earlier, um, those earlier spring dates, uh, February or March, could, could likely work just fine. Um, and then I think a question, then the question comes to preparation. Once you have a goal score, once you have an idea of the overall schedule for testing, then thinking about preparation. And some people ask, when should, when should that preparation happen? And I think there's a couple of different answers that, that can work for different people. The, the default would be running right up to the test date in the weeks that are preceding that test date. So um, not, you know, not cramming, not the night before, not two days before, but in those weeks leading up to that first test date, that can be a good time to, to do that preparation, get familiar with what's gonna be on the test, learn some strategies to know how to get to the best answer most quickly. Um, but there are some families students and parents who say, wait, you're talking about adding another commitment in junior year? That's, you've got to be kidding. We, can, we couldn't cram one more thing into this junior year. 
between classes and in APs and sports and other activities. And so for, for those families, a lot of times that summer before junior year works better, where there's a little bit more, more time, um, but you know, by learning those strategies, students can get familiar with the question types, get some practice in, and then just do a little bit of refresher um, leading up to their first official test day. I guess the last, last option that we see um, working, working sometimes for students is some of the, for those students who do say, well, I'm, I'm gonna disregard what you're, what you're saying, Sam and Mai, and I'm gonna take it cold the first time and, and see how it goes. Then we do see students that in that summer before senior year, try to really make, a, make an impact on their score and take a class, do some study, work with a book, work with a tutor, whatever it may be. Uh, and that can work well. That, that, that leaves the possibility of kind of a really high pressure test in the fall because you, you know, okay, this is kind of my last chance. I've, I've got to deliver, I've got to perform on this, on this one day uh, versus if you're starting early and you're prepared for that first one, then the pressure's off knowing that you've got a couple of, couple of attempts that you're, that you're gonna make. I think just the, the idea here is that if, if a student is going to be prepared, that just means planning in advance. Um, and I think that all these pieces, understanding the timeline, understanding if it could fit in your schedule, it all can first seem very overwhelming for families, for students, even for counselors to convey to their students. It's a lot of info. Um, and I think the easiest way to understand that is just be prepared, understand that being prepared means to plan ahead. And this is not a new test. You know, no one is surprised by this test and with the time that it comes around in the year, it's always there. Um, so I think that's just one thing to keep in mind. Planning ahead is always going to put you ahead of the rest. I'm, I'm really interested in knowing more about how students take the test from an individual perspective. I know that um, I've talked to students personally where um, some students might need accommodations and some might not. So what can you say about the accommodation aspect of testing? Yeah, for, for counselors, I think the first thing that I would, would say is if you have a student that is applying for accommodations, start early. Um, some, some families, make the mistake of thinking that they can just check a box when they're registering for the SAT, when they're registering for the ACT and say, oh, and also uh, we'd like these accommodations with like 50% uh, extended time or, or something like that. And often the approval process is gonna take longer than that test registration window will allow. So um, start early with that process. Um, the College Board and ACT do require documentation from from professionals of, of what uh, you know what is makes those accommodations necessary for that student um, and so that's that's number one two there are a variety of accommodations that are that are available most common is as I said 50% extended time where a student gets um, you know for a section that was going to be 25 minutes long now it'll be 37 and a half minutes long so they get they get that time extended. One thing that's changed recently with extended time, and I think not everyone is aware of it, is it, it used to be that the SAT required students to continue to work on that same section that they were on and not go on to the next one. So um, if 
say it's a, again a 25 minute section, but if a student finished in um, 26 minutes or something, they still had to sit and wait for those 37 and a half minutes to elapse before they went to the next section. So I've talked with some students where they really felt they only needed the extended time on the reading sections where perhaps they were a slower reader, but they could fly through the math. And so there was some, there were some endurance challenges and even attention challenges if you're finishing some, you're finishing three of the sections quick, but then that one section you need the time, but you have to sit there and wait and you're daydreaming, you're getting tired by just sitting there doing nothing. And that's how College Board Extended Time has been. It used to be that ACT allowed you to work straight through, where if you had extended time, you could take as much time as you needed on math. If that was quick, you could go right on to the next section and didn't have to wait for that 37 and a half minutes in our, in our example. Um, but that's changed recently to where now ACT is mirroring what the College Board has done where you have to stay on the section that you're on. And so there are some people I've spoken with who say, oh, well, if a student gets accommodations, ACT is a better test. That used to be largely true, but that really, that really has changed. Um, I think the last thing I would say is <clears throat> there are a variety of accommodations available, um, even in the students that we've worked with at Kaplan. Um, we've had students that qualify to have a reader, students that qualify to have large print books, braille books. Um, they've had uh, a, a variety of, of different things. And so many things are available, but um, the, the College Board and ACT are going to require verification that those are, that those are necessary for the student to, uh, to, to test in a way that, uh, that's best for them. I'm glad you said verification <laughs> because uh, so some students think that they can apply for this. Well, at least in, in, in my talks with um, students in the past, uh, some students think that they can apply for this without a doctor's note, without some kind of medical validation. Um, but accommodations is a very real thing. So students who get accommodations they're not necessarily put at this like they get more leverage on the test as opposed to um, you know a general student um, it, it puts them on a level playing field where they get the accommodations that they need so they can take the tests based on um, their own um, standards or um, what what medically is required for them to take the test to meet that that general idea of taking the test within a standard time frame so that i think i'm glad you touched up on those things um, there is another question that I wanted to ask you um, because maybe I've, I've experienced something different. Uh, why do you think that students, when it comes to SAT versus ACT, why do you think that some students, and depending on where they are regionally, feel the need that they have to take the SAT or they have to take the ACT, despite both of them being widely accepted at universities and colleges? I think a lot of that has to do with, with history, that it was the case that in the Northeast, the, the SAT was the only test for, for a while. And so even though um, the ACT has been around since the 50s, it still feels like the, 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 the new entrant uh, into the testing scene, especially in the, in the Northeast. Um, and I think a lot of students do 
rely somewhat on their parents and, and parents rely on their own experience. And if, um, if a parent, if a parent asks me, okay, I know the SAT, but what is this act? I don't, I don't know this act test. What is this? It's a, it's a foreign thing. They've never heard of the ACT. And so the natural thought is how can something I've never heard of be an important part of this process? Uh, and, and I think that's hard to, uh, that's hard to refute um, if you're if you're speaking with a parent. You know, to counselors specifically, what what I have found is even counselors that maybe are standing in their school auditorium speaking to all the junior parents and saying, "We find I've had counselors tell me they said we find ACT is something that every student should consider, and you know we'd like every student to take the ACT to to try it." that still it may only be 20, 30, 40% of the families that, that follow that. Um, so it's hard for, I think it's, it's easier for parents to be comfortable adding steps to the process, but they get uncomfortable subtracting parts from the process. And so if SAT was part of their experience, it's hard to subtract SAT from their, from their kids' experience or, or vice versa for, sure. for in the Midwest where more students are taking the, the ACT in many cases, it's hard to say, no, don't take the ACT. It looks like the SAT is a better fit for your students. Say, how could anyone go to college without the ACT? It's, it's uh, to some, it makes them feel better for their kids to follow a similar process. Even if that process adds some additional steps, they don't wanna take out things that were, were such an important part of, of their process. That's a really good perspective since I've had similar circumstances where my sister took the SAT. Like, oh, I have to take the SAT because she took the SAT. I mean, it's just ingrained in our, in our DNA to take the SAT. Um, and in reality, it's just schools are really making these decisions. They're making the decision and they're, they're um, conveying this information to families and students and, and saying, this is the test that we recommend that you take. Um, but families have full control over which test um, they want to take. So I think that they should always consider leveraging the one that's gonna be best suited for the student. So that's great. The one thing I would add on, on that point, sometimes when I've spoken with parents, I can tell that they're, they're thinking, are, are you sure that colleges accept both of them equally? Are, are you sure about that? And what I think has made sense to them is when they realize that a college wherever in the U.S. it's located, they want to attract a geographically diverse uh, student body. They want students from uh, from the local area and from from across the U.S. And so, if that college says, "Well, we like this one test, but we'll your other test is okay," there are parts of the country where most of the students are taking the SAT. There are parts of the country where most of the students are taking the ACT, and so they colleges are going to deter students from applying if they don't accept these tests equally. And so uh, to some extent, they've, they've had to adopt that. And it is the case that many colleges will get far more students submitting SAT scores. And if they get a student, when they get students with ACT scores, they just convert those to the equivalent SAT score so that all the students are compared apples to apples and vice versa for colleges that are getting mostly ACT scores. They just convert the SAT scores, but they, they have to legitimately 
adopt that perspective that both tests are equal, we accept them both, you know, whatever test you have taken is, is fine with us and we'll use for in our, in our application decisions because they want students from across the country, regardless of which test most of their, their colleagues, most of their peers have taken. I've encountered students who ask me, um, how should they prep? What kind of prep would work best for them? Because in this entire conversation, we're fully advocating to plan ahead. Plan ahead, be prepared. Um, but how do you do that? How do you go about that? And I think that aside from thinking about the standardized testing environment in that world and how much information is in there, and then going into preparation and seeing, oh gosh, I have this wide array of options and I don't know which one's gonna work, which one has the best material, uh, which one is going to uh, uh, be better suited for me to really ace this test. So how, how would you go about speaking to a student um, regarding ways in which they should be prepping, questions that they should be asking themselves, things to consider? Yeah. I think first it does go back to that goal score question. So if there's a certain school that uh, a student is, is interested in, in going to, look at what that 75th percentile score for that school is and then compare that to a practice test. The PSAT can be a good resource uh, for that as well, now that it's so similar to the SAT, if, if that's the test the student is, is choosing. But looking at that differential between the goal score and the current score, um, for, a, for a student who has a, a big differential, that's, that's going to influence their decision uh, in one way. If they're already at that goal score, if, if they have a couple of schools they've looked at and they say, wow, I'm already above the 75th percentile for all these schools, then great. You probably are prepared uh, already if, if that's your situation. So looking at the goal score and how far away a student is, I think that's the first step. Um, second is how much time you have, both in terms of how far away is that first test date and how much time per week or, or you know, in, in the schedule week after week does a student have. Um, and then I think the third one is, uh, is cost. So you know, to, to prepare, often you're working one-on-one -on -one or working with one teacher that's working with a group of students and th there is some, some cost involved. But I would put them in that order, um, looking at what is the need that a, the student has first, and then uh, figure out how best to how best to get there. For students with a really with a with a high goal compared to where they are right now, then um, tutoring or classes probably we do find higher score increases uh, in those programs um, more often. Where for a student that is that is pretty close or maybe one practice test they were above it, one they were a little bit below it. Um, some, some less intensive uh, options, whether it's a self-study program or a book, just to familiarize themselves with the structure of the test, the kinds of questions, some strategies that they'll need to use, um, that, that, may be, that may be enough. Um, so it, it really should be an individualized question. One of the, I think one of the hardest, hardest questions to answer is when someone says, so what is a good SAT score? What is a good ACT score? You know, I got this, is this good? Well, I can't really answer that. You, know, you a student can go to a college with just about any score, but is that going, is that going to get you to your goals? Is that gonna get you to the, the college of your choice? Um, 
so it really has to come to the, the goal score. It's a good, if it's above your goal score, then it's a good score. If it's not, then you've got some, you've got a, a gap that you can, can close to, to try to get to that goal. I'd say it's safe to say that there are a group of students who will take the test to determine which school that they could use this score for. And then there's um, another group of students who plan ahead and think of the schools in which they wanna to go to, find out, kind of do some backtracking and say, oh, that's the score that Harvard needs, that's the score that Stanford needs, that's the one that UCLA needs. And then um, have that be your target score when you do take the test. Um, I, I personally would go the route of picking my school and which, and that's what I did when, when I was in high school, I picked my school, I picked a range of, um, I went to UCLA and I, I knew I wanted to be in the UC system. It was home. It was something I was familiar with and they had a great educational system. And I wanted to be a part of that. So knowing I wanted to be a part of that, that influenced me to to get the goal score I wanted when it came to standardized testing. Um, and I think that's what students should go in with the mentality of having, knowing your school, knowing that score, exactly what you said, and approaching it from that perspective. I think it is a misconception that people hear test optional and they think this college doesn't look at scores for any students, for any application. And right. that really is, is not the case. It means there is a path to admission without a score but um a lot of it's going to come down to will that score make the applicants make the students application stronger or weaker and that's not a simple it's not a simple answer you can just go through with a, a simple check off list second. yeah <laughs> um really got to look at look at that that application um but i was interested to learn that um even for test optional schools that in a, in a study that was done of um, I believe 20 some test optional colleges that 75% of students were still submitting scores. So um, that's, that's a substantial percentage of course. Uh, you know, the fact that a quarter of students were, read, were applying without scores means that that message of test optional was out there and that some students were, were taking advantage of that opportunity. But most students, hopefully in conjunction with their counselor, were making the decision not to submit. Uh, most of the students were making the decision to submit their scores uh, in hopes that that was going to improve their, their chances. And as you said, by and large, colleges are gonna take all the available information that they have um, with, to, to evaluate whether to admit a student. Um, as far as I know, the only college that was test blind, which is where they don't look at scores, even if you send them, was Hampshire College uh, in, in Massachusetts, but they, they have announced uh, they aren't going to be admitting new, more freshmen uh, in the fall, and so they, they are not, they're not taking applications now. So um, by and large, it's the test optional, that test optional label means there is a path to admission without a test score for for students that can can demonstrate what they can do through other parts of their application but students with a great test score are still in a great place and should should absolutely include that um, in their in their application right 
So despite a school deeming that their test optional, students still feel like it's going to be a big part of the application process, despite whatever that school says about the standardized test. I think that's interesting. I think it's also ingrained standardized testing. It's we've been doing it for so long that it's ingrained in our culture. It's a step-by-step -step process of this is what you have to take. If you're going to change that, the change is not going to happen overnight. So which, which makes sense to your statistic of students still taking the test and submitting it despite it being, you know, a test optional school. There's a difference too between testing and submitting the scores. So um, I would say with, with very few exceptions, almost every student should, should test and see, you know, you, you have a score, you don't want to get to senior year where you're considering your next steps and you say, oh, but for this step that I want to take, I need a test score, but I never got it. So I guess I can't do that now. You can take, a, take, a, take the test and if it's a great score, great. If it's not a great score, okay, now you know and you know what you have to work with. And that can be something that you put some work into to try to raise, or it can be you decide that a test score is not going to be a part of how you're going to show your value to, to colleges or to, uh, to whatever your next step is after, after college. Um, so well, I would recommend everyone take it so that you have that as a, you, you don't want that to be omitted from your, from your options um, for, for college and, and next steps after high school. What would you advise a student who has been preparing or studying maybe on their own, maybe through um, uh, Kaplan or <laughs> just locally, uh, but they've been studying for the test. They take the test. It's not reflecting the best score or the, the score that they got in their practice test. They don't feel so confident um, to take the test again, but they still want to, to get a better score. Um, what would, you, what would you say to help build a student's confidence under that kind of scenario? Yeah. One, I would say that testing again is, is in that student's best interest, going back to super scoring, even if, for, for the SAT at least, even if they end up with the same total score, if the math is a little higher, but evidence-based reading and writing is a little lower, that super score will be higher. Uh, because it'll be the best math and the best evidence-based reading and writing. And so there's, there's value there. Um, two, I would say every time you're doing practice, try to, try to learn from that practice. If, oh, my score was low, there's every form of the test, whether it's the official test or, or a practice test, can give you more information than just, okay, uh, 1210 or 1060. Oh man, I'm, I'm, I got a 1060. Let me try again. Like you're going to pull a slot machine. No, look at it. What section was, what section was it? You know, most of the time when students are scoring low, they'll see, oh, well, it was, it was the algebra or it was uh, this, this, um, this scientific based reading passage that was, it was hard for me to really understand what the author was talking about. And so uh, I think finding, trying to bring more specificity to where those points are being missed um, can make raising that score much more achievable um, by you know, 
if you you realize, oh, I would have gotten that score if only I had been more familiar with science science reading. Okay, well, whether on your own or or with uh, with a tutor, with a coach, look at some more science reading passages. Look at a you know a, a science a science journal and try to understand what what those authors are talking about. And so, um, I find by by making more specific where a student is doing well and where they still have points to to pick up can make it feel less daunting, feel less overwhelming, and they can they can get a uh, they can get the results they're looking for. I think it's easy to feel discouraged about the test um, as opposed to seeing all the opportunities that it opens once you do take it um, and that hard work does pay off. All right, that's it for today. It was great to have this conversation with Mai, and I want to thank her for joining me for this episode. If you enjoyed listening to it, please subscribe to the College Counseling Podcast. Also, be sure to bookmark our counselor hub at captest.com counselors for great resources for you and your students. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at samuel.pritchard at kaplan.com or on Twitter at sampritchardedu. Thank you for listening. Thank you.